Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Everybody, welcome to Jaybird Watching here. This is Craig Bourne, your host, and I have an illustrious panel of Toronto Blue Jays aficionados, I guess would be the best way of saying it this evening. Uh, Ian Hunter from pretty much everywhere, I guess, here with us. <laughs> Go ahead and say oh. hi, Ian. <laughs> Hello, thank you for having me on. Sounds good, bud. It's a pleasure to have you here. And um, obviously, uh, you're writing for the Daily Hive, BlueJayHunter.com, and all the everywhere, it seems like, for Blue Jays news these days. Too many places, way too many places. I'm, I'm not quite sure how you keep that track, man, <laughs> but it's good for it. Thank you. So, anyways, then we have Ari Shapiro of AriShapiro.com and JaysJournal.com's podcast. How's it going, Ari? It's going well, my friend. It's AriShapiro.ca because oh, .ca, if you I'm go sorry. to AriShapiro.com, <laughs> you end up with this really svelte, handsome journalist who works for NPR, and I can assure you that is definitely not me. I have a strange feeling he probably doesn't have the illustrious beard that you have. <laughs> well, you see, that's one way to save it. I'll tell you, fantastic. Good to be here, Craig. Thanks for having me on your show. It's a pleasure, as always, Ari. And then, of course, my partner in crime, Adam Corsair, buddy. What's going on at South of the Six? Everything's great, man. What's going on with you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's all good here. All good Blue Jay stuff all day, every day here on Jaybird Watching. And um, we're going to dive right into the first thing, and um, I'm going to let our first-time guest, Ian, uh, jump into the latest news here. Um, it sounds like there might be some actual traction to the Marcus Stroman possibly being on the market. sounds like the Reds are knocking on the door. What do you think, bud? Yeah, I saw that. It's To me, that seems kind of odd. Um, you know, the Reds are kind of on the outs of contention. You would think a contending team like maybe someone like the like the Mets for example or the Phillies or another National League team would would have more interest to me I've always thought that it doesn't really make sense for the Blue Jays to trade Marcus Stroman um, because one his his value is probably at a at a low point right now and for two the Blue Jays need starters in the next two years i mean i realize that this team is not going to be contending likely in 2019 and 2020 but they still 
they still need guys to make 20, 30 starts in a year. Um, that is unless, you know, it seems like the the market this winter is trending in the trade direction. Like it's guys aren't really signing free agent deals. Their teams are would much rather make trades. And if another contending team approaches the Blue Jays with a really nice fair fair market value package, I think the Blue Jays probably jump on that trade. But for me, I think the Blue Jays go the way of hang on to Stroman, hope he has a decent first half of uh, the 2019 season, and then you flip him in a trade. Um, because I just think right now you're selling low on him if you trade him uh, this offseason. I agree with you on that. It seems like there's nobody to eat up those 200 innings that we're going to need at least from a couple of guys. You know, we don't have Jay Happ in this rotation anymore, and it sounds like as of today he's probably New York Yankee, which is almost just as bad. So anyway, Ari, your two cents? Well, presumably if Jay Happ is a New York Yankee, it's because they gave him at least three years, right? His whole thing was at one point, if you're serious about me, give me a long-term, long-term contract, you know, put, put a ring on the finger at least for what's remaining in his career, right? Because he's a guy who's in his 30s, so I'm not surprised the Yankees ponied up. I think signing J-Hap is a no-brainer. Um, you know, everything Ian just said to me makes total sense. I, I don't understand. I, I guess when you use social media long enough, as we all do, eventually you start getting these ridiculous scenarios that make no sense whatsoever. And to me, trading Marcus Stroman or Aaron Sanchez doesn't even deserve to be dignified as a one of those talking point possibilities because it's just so ridiculous. It, it really, really is. I mean, unless you're getting something back in a trade that can help you for the reasonable future, uh, something that you can plug into your lineup that can, like you said, Craig, make up for all those starts you're going to lose, what is the point of selling either of those two former first-rounders um, when their stock is at its lowest? Right. I mean, you're talking about two players who've got everything to prove, especially if Scott Boris is supposed to put money in Aaron's pocket. And in Marcus's case, how many times can he go through arbitration? I mean, he must have some real, he must have a serious inferior, inferiority complex by now. I think I would. I mean, if I'm, if I'm a pitcher in my mid-20s and I've got Marcus Stroman's stuff, how the heck am I still signing one-year deals? You know, so he's got something to prove. And if the Blue Jays have... If they've got any intelligence left in these personnel decisions they've been making lately, in my books, you do not trade Marcus or Aaron unless somebody gives you a whopper of a deal. And I don't think there's a, a franchise out there that would give up too much for those guys with the kind of years they've had. Okay, yeah, I agree that as far as where they go, they got to put up or shut up at this point in the season to be able to get that trade value. So, Adam... The quote-unquote comparison is the James Paxton trade. We goofed around about this before the show. Are we even on the same ballpark level here? No, no. I, I don't see... If the Blue Jays are looking for Paxton-esque return for either or both, I can't imagine them trading both, but um, either of these players, and Sanchez and Stroman, they're dreaming. Like, right now, not, that's not to say that their stuff isn't worthy of it. It's just that, as Ian said, they're trade value is sort of at an all-time low right now. Um, I expect clubs to be interested in these pitchers. Every club should be, quote-unquote, interested in players like this. Like, to me, that's the, the key word. The buzzword is interested. Interested doesn't necessarily mean pursuing, right? And so if a team is interested in these players and they call and acquire about them, well, they're going to get a, a return that's, as reported, uncomfortably high. And it should be. And that should probably turn off those would-be uh, fitting teams to make a move for a Stroman or a Sanchez. 
Um, it's interesting to me because, I don't know, like the, this whole narrative of the new regime trying to get rid of uh, AA's guys, this is sort of putting a, a bullet in that theory, right? Because they aren't really eager to get rid of Sanchez or Strowman. And uh, if they were, I don't think the asking price would be, quote-unquote, uncomfortably high. So it, it's just an interesting dynamic that when you have two players like this that could certainly solidify at least, like, the front-to-middle portions of the rotation, um, I, I just don't see a reason why the Jays would even want to get rid of them. Yeah, I think the final reason is the Lance Lins of the world and whatnot seem to be fading really quickly in this winter meetings already. So as far as getting those innings, you trade Stram, San, Stroman and Chan, Sanchez. Wow. Uh, you can't <laughs> just... <laughs> Where are you going to go to get those innings? You can't exactly. just go on the free agent market. I'm sorry, Lance Lynn isn't going to even get the you know 200 innings this year, I would imagine, either. And that's why he got the contract he got. So being able to keep running with these guys, I'm, I don't want to be given Ryan Barucki 200 innings this year. You know, they, they should not be pushing that much on the Sean Reed Foley's run, Ryan Barucki's and whatnot. It's, it's going to happen eventually, but it doesn't need to happen in 2019. So on the note of what Adam just said, Changing the guard clearly is happening. Troy Tulowinski is no longer a Toronto Blue Jay. Um, Ari, you want to kick this one off? Well, I want to. I want to quickly mention that uh, you know, not a, not only did Adam hit it on the nail by talking about making the transition from the Anthopolis regime. I mean, I think all four of us have noticed that it's been a real systemic effort, right? I mean, there's been a focus here to make this into Mark Shapiro's team. And the only way to make it into Mark Shapiro's team is to get rid of players that were attached to whatever legacy you think Alex Anthopoulos had. And if you now look at what's happened with Tulo and you factor in the kind of buzz and chatter we're hearing about Stroman and Sanchez, it, it plays to that narrative of just wiping their hands of everything or anything remotely associated with, with Alex Anthopoulos. And, you know, with Tulo, I mean, man, if there's one player over the last couple of years that has really made it difficult for me to reconcile my opinion about him, it's Troy Tulowitzki, because I wanted in my power to like this player more than any other player when he arrived in, in September of 2015. You know, there was a real change in the attitude for today's Blue Jays fans when they saw a baller of his caliber. I mean, we're talking about a guy who came in with a Cooperstown resume. In fact, I think we can all agree that if not for the Toronto Blue Jays, we'd still be talking about how Troy Tulowitzki is destined to the Hall of Fame. Although, yeah. now with Harold Baines, which we'll talk about later, we can say he's definitely bound for the Hall of Fame. But, but the reality is, is that Troy Tulowitzki didn't perform while he was here. And although injuries were an issue and he became somewhat of a glass cannon, the thing that bothers me most about Troy Tulowitzki is not only did he underperform, but his attitude just stunk from day one. You know, it was abundantly obvious watching him play and listening to him in the media interviews that Troy Tulowitzki was clearly unhappy about the way he was handled with the Rockies. The fact that he was now in this weird Toronto north of the border existence that just coincidentally happened to c compete for a brief window. He knew he wasn't going anywhere with the Blue Jays. And so the fact that he was able to walk out with $38 million in his pocket guaranteed and, and no flexibility for the Blue Jays kind of makes me wonder how this regime really has any self-respect left. You know what I mean? Like this is a stain on the way the Blue Jays handle their personnel decisions that, that this player ended up, in my opinion, going through the ringer the way he did with the Blue Jays. Just feels off, you know? Yeah, I agree with you on that one, but it's a good thing that almost everybody that they plan this future of this team around is under team control for a very extended amount of time. <laughs> so, Ian, your two cents on the Tulo fun. 
Well, you know, I I feel like they were on this collision course. Uh, it was going to happen, um, whether it was this year, next year, or the following. Um, this was a breakup in the making. And the Blue Jays, I, kind of frankly, I'm surprised they ripped off the Band-Aid this quickly. Um, I think they probably saw... Um, what was going to happen in the future? You've got guy. You you have a lot of depth at the shortstop position. You have Lourdes Gurriel. You have Bo Bichette. Um, so it's not like the Blue Jays would be banking on him on Tulowitzki to return. The Blue Jays traded Ledmus Diaz as well, another uh, member of their infield. And yeah, it's just it's just kind of sad that it it can't like Tulo fell so far so fast. I think everyone can kind of think back to that you know, crazy night and morning when the Blue Jays acquired Tulowitzki and that just really set things in motion and it just transformed the Blue Jays suddenly into a contender. And now he's, the Blue Jays paid him $38 million to, to go away. Um, I, I think from a PR perspective, it kind of looks bad, but I think it could have looked, it could have looked a, a whole lot worse, yeah. especially, yeah. especially considering the comments that Tulowitzki made saying, you know, I'm going to pack up my bags and go home and, it was kind of like a, a game of chicken between the Blue Jays and Tulowitzki, and the Blue Jays just decided, you know what, we're going to write you a check and be on your merry way, and hopefully you catch on with another team. But the Blue Jays are clear, clearly going a, in a much different direction. Yeah, I agree. And as far as all the rest of this fun goes, um, Adam, I'm going to let you continue to run with this uh, tear down the Anthopolis era stuff. And do you think Russell Martin is the next key to fall here? I was going to say that's got to be the next domino, right? Because, like, there's been whispers uh, since the beginning of the offseason that Russell Martin may be a nice little trade chip for someone. Um, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they were actively shopping him, j- just because, like, injuries aside and whatnot, like, offensively the produ- production's just not there anymore. Um, I, I think he's uh, a class act, and I think he does wonders for this for this team as a, as a mentor and on, on someone on the bench. I think I mentioned it to Ari not too long ago that, you know, it wouldn't surprise me before they um, brought in Montoyo. It wouldn't surprise me if, Don, if um, sorry, Martin was some sort of um, player manager. Because I think, like, they sort of set that up with that last game of the season, him managing the team. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if later down the line he became a manager just the same. But that's kind of uh, in, divulging into a different topic. But... I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if they try to find a suitor for him. Um, you see these dominoes starting to fall, like with the Tulowitzkis, and you know Edwin's gone, Jose's gone. Uh, I know, uh, Craig, you mentioned that Sports Illustrated cover. Like pretty much everyone but Martin on that Sports Illustrated cover is gone, and it's just sort of like it rings hollow now because we we sort of romanticize about the 2015 and 2016 season. And we, you know, see these these players, and we regarded them as such pivotal pieces. And now, like on the drop of a dime, they're gone. And it's just, I don't know. It makes you reflect back a little bit and say, "Oh man, how did this how did this go south so quickly?" And so, I, I don't know. It's just sort of like a bittersweet thing to me. Yeah, but as fast as it went down, it looks like we're going to be coming back just as quickly. Nobody, no teams do this kind of turnaround like we're doing with this many talented minor leaguers. But as far as before, we wrap this little bit up here of uh, news before we dive into the meat of this program which is going to be Hall of Fame talk and the Harold Baineses of the worlds and why the Blue Jays might have gotten a bad shake if that's what the new standard is for the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame Ari your last two cents I know you just wrote an article not too long ago about Russell Martin I figure I'd give you a chance to tee in well you know Russell I mean it's Russell you know it's it's different he he truly occupies a different um, sheen or 
or kind of footprint with a lot of Blue Jays fans because he's Canadian, because he plays the all-important you know position of catcher, and because he was a really important part of having the swagger to be a competitive postseason team, right? I threw out all the stats in my recent review of him. You know, he's a winner, or at least he knows how to get to the postseason. Some would argue you're not a winner until you've won it all. And, you know, you, you just made a really great point, Craig, that there will be a reasonably expedited rebound when you've got this much minor league talent. But in order for it to be functional and to actually translate into winning divisions or getting into the wild card, you need some veteran leadership to teach the young kids how to win. And for me, what you're doing with Russell Martin in 2019 is paying him $20 million for extensive consulting services. That's it. And and considering this organization is throwing around money these days for players who've done nothing for them at all, I mean, you can afford to spend the money for what it's worth. You're going to be shaving the payroll anyways. Why not let Russell Martin become like a player, a coach, a mentor? Why not have him show Danny Jansen and Reese McGuire and whomever else they might consider in the future what it means to be an effective catcher, call a strong game? And, you know, all, all, all of us here in this discussion know that when Russell Martin is calling the game, you're, you've got the best chance to win if you're a Toronto Blue Jays pitcher. And why not have him help make that transition? Because... I don't think you're going to get any value in a potential trade, and I don't think a team is going to eat that much money for a catcher, considering they also have young players. So why not let let him, unlike so many of these other crash and burn, cutting from you know your your, your ligature, your limb, keep him intact. In let him let him finish the year with the team, and maybe influence them in a way that would make them proud to be a Toronto Blue Jays player. Because it's hard to do that if you're starting next year and you're looking around, and all these guys, like you said, Adam, on the Sports Illustrated cover are gone. And it's in the blink of an eye, like literally, what, two and a half years, three years? Yeah. Come on, that's crazy. That's crazy. Too fast. Yeah. And thank you, Ari, for hitting that nail that I was hoping you would. <laughs> I was hoping you get the flip side of what Adam was ch- chatting about. So appreciate okay, it. Well, you're just, you know, it's it's hockey season, so I'm just I'm potting these goals. You're giving me the assists. So. <laughs> All right, got it. So anyways, let's jump into why we are here and what the wonderful fun of the baseball off season is this time of year. We just had the you know new the era committee vote in Lee Smith and Harold Baines into the Baseball Hall of Fame. So they will be in the hollowed halls of Cooperstown, New York. That is usually reserved for the you know the elite of the elite, the top point two percent of Major League Baseball players, the guys that are just untouchable legends of the game. Um, I can make an argument for Lee Smith. It is getting harder and harder, no matter how far I dive into the stats, to see Harold Baines as a full-on Hall of Famer, especially after being voted off the island after three or four ballots by the writers. It just seems really odd to me. At least Lee Smith stayed through the whole tenure. Um, Ian, I'm going to let you kick off this argument. Well, um, yeah, the whole Baines thing, I think everyone's kind of scratching their head saying, well, what exactly is going on here like is it just a bunch of his friends uh voting him into the hall of fame uh ben Lindbergh at the ringer had a really good article this week uh exactly on that so he looked into the numbers i don't know if everyone's familiar with the the jaws stat jay jaffe's uh hall of fame barometer basically but so Baines ranked 74th all time amongst right fielders um Baines' jaws was 30.1 compared to the average Hall of Famer, which is 57.8. Um, I mean, terrible. Baines, to me, is like the ultimate, like, 
counting stats guy like he's got he has the season he has 20 seasons he has a handful of all-star appearances but he's by no means a hall of famer uh it's just if you don't go in the front door why do you get to go in the back door it's it's very confusing to me and meanwhile we'll probably get into this later but you know, there's guys like Fred McGriff who aren't going to get into the Hall of Fame this way. Carlos Delgado dropped off the ballot the first year, and then meanwhile, you know, uh, you've got Baines in, the, in Cooperstown. It just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I get why they voted him. They probably felt like he deserves to, but you know, just looking at his numbers, he's he is not a Hall of Famer. Yeah, it, it really the only nail you can hit, I think, is the fact that it is literally an extended career. 22 years of being a very, very consistent contributor on the field. And this guy was an all-star when he was 40. <laughs> so I, I don't want to say he's a terrible baseball player or anything by any means, but the fact that like uh, we were just talking about there with the Jaws stat, career war for outfielders, the average in the Hall of Fame is way above 60. You know, we're minimum 65 career war, and Harold Baines is sitting at 38.7. So you're not even, you're almost halfway. You're a little more halfway. <laughs> so, um, Adam, you know you know what this is. Yeah, this is an abu- This is in some ways, I think you'll agree, like an abuse of the whole reason you do the veterans honorary um, nomination for this, right? I mean, the whole reason you've got these elder statesmen of the hall considering players who didn't get in during their first shot, you know, whatever attempts, 10 attempts, 12 attempts, 15 attempts, whatever. The whole process is supposed to pick up those who were lost that deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. What I hate about this decision is that it's like, it's a group of of players and coaches and managers who were part of the 1980s and 90s seeing the transition from one school of baseball to another. And this is like them saying, you know what, we're going to choose our guy because we remember what he was like when he played. And and by the way, I have the unenviable admission of telling you, I remember watching Harold Baines as a kid on TV against the Blue Jays, especially against those late 80s teams, early 90s. And I distinctly remember that he was always a tough at-bat and that he was a tough player and you dread him coming up and hitting against your team. But at no point in my nostalgic reflections on Harold Baines did I ever once think to myself that this is a future Hall of Famer. And considering that there are players he played with that should be in the Hall of Fame that I remember infinitely more fondly because they were great, i.e. Don Mattingly, Will Smith, um, who else, Dwight Evans, Dave Parker, you know, names like that, if you line him up against those names, he can't even hold their jockstraps. So this is a real shame. I think this really spoils it because now it takes this hallowed hall that the four of us could agree was like the ultimate of all the sporting halls because it was the toughest to get in. And for years it was only, you know, 300 wins and 500 home runs. And then they changed that and put in sabermetrics. And now they've like ignored the sabermetric science to get in their guy. And I think that's the problem with the precedent that 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 decision sets. Science be fooled you. <laughs> so well, as I mean, far as Ian, Ian goes, said what six six point one percent was the highest in a ten year span that Harold Baines ever got in support. So what does that mean? 
does that mean that Carlos Delgado only getting three and a half percent in his first year and get that getting knocked off can't be seen as anything more than nepotism? Right. How do you explain such things like that? It's supposed to be about how good you were and uh, relative to your peers as the best in the game. And I'm sorry, Harold Baines just broke the mold, and now everyone will be eligible. Yeah, and well, uh, we're nobody's... gonna get plenty into those Blue Jays guys here in a moment. Ari, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say nobody's you know banging the drum for for Harold Baines to get like. <laughs> putting together this, you know, Tim Raines campaign that Jonah Carey did. Like <gasps> nobody's doing that for Baines. It's just it is kind of like his peers, uh, and former teammates, uh, coaches, what have you, just picking him up and saying, Yeah, I remember that guy. Okay, well let's let's vote him in. Like because he, he was around for twenty years yeah. and he had flashes of brilliance. I mean he was an all star, but he was by no means a, a Hall of Flame caliber player. And to me this just illustrates that if if somebody like down the road, someone like a Dave Steve or a Fred McGriff, if they don't get in in this avenue, then what's the point of having this? Because yeah. Bingo. it's Bingo. it's it like like Ari said, it's supposed to pick up the guys that got left behind the first time around. So and if they're still getting left behind, and guys like Harold Baines are getting in, then there's there's no po- what's the po- point in this exercise? It doesn't make any sense. That's right. And you had your perfect guy waiting by the wings. Let's just clarify. If the committee really wanted to do anything, and they can't because he's still eligible for one more year, it should be Edgar Martinez. The fact that Edgar is not in the Hall of Fame, but Mr. Baines is, come on. That's a real joke on anyone who really understands the game of baseball. I was going to say that. I was going to say someone that's a primary DH that's not named Edgar Martinez that got into the to the hall is is a travesty like that just doesn't make any sense to me and like i think the response by baines himself like you can't really read emotion or like how people emote in a tweet but it was reported somewhere that he's that baines said himself he's he was just shocked and the way i read it it was just not in a good way like he probably was like i'm shocked i got it it was probably like i don't i i don't understand and this is what this is the problem. Like it, there seems to be some sort of agenda by this this committee to get their guy, quote unquote, in that doesn't necessarily belong there, and that's okay. Like this, I, I don't want to like get into like politics or anything, but this is sort of like everyone's included kind of philosophy kind of thing. And it's okay that you're not good enough to be in the hall, and it's okay that you had a good enough career period as a baseball player. Those can be two different things, and you can be proud of uh, of being a good baseball player and having a solid career without being in the hall like that's perfectly okay but now we're into this this system now now we're into this this open door the back door as ian said that okay now there's a way for me to get in even though by the standards that we've operated on for years if i don't make it in oh well i'll find another way that to me is just what's the point now what's the point it's it's for me like now like I don't know, when I saw the list of players, or personnel, rather, that was on this, I was like, oh, maybe George has a way to get in, maybe? But, like, Bain, never at once did that cross my mind. It's just kind of, like, weird to me, and this kind of ruins the whole, like, awe factor of the Hall for me, in a way. Like, obviously, like, the good overrides the bad, but if this continues to be the trend, it's going to get ugly. Yeah, it's called celebrating mediocrity. That's yeah. what it is. When you play over, what, 2,200 baseball games... And your claim to fame is that you hung around a long time to leave an indelible mark in a group of peers that coincidentally are making up the majority of the selection committee. 
The message it sends is that they want to do what they want to do to hell with the sensibilities. And you know they're loving it. I don't know if you saw the LaRusse interview. Yeah. It was on ESPN, and he was basically saying, we did what we wanted to do, and we feel he measures up against everyone. And you're sitting there going, I'm looking at numbers and facts. You know, it's almost like we're being pulled into the political realm of fake news. What do you know, Tony LaRusse, that I don't, as a baseball follower and enthusiast, that would lead you to believe that Harold Baines is a Hall of Famer? And the answer is nothing. Except he's Tony LaRusa and he can flash his rings. It was the most antiquated argument that I've ever heard from a manager. Like, it was ridiculous that he was so combative and so angry with, like, you don't know him, you don't know him, this guy's a team player. Listen to me. Team player is great. These intangibles are great. The intangibles don't get you into the Hall of Fame. Period. I don't care how good you are as a person when it comes to getting into the Hall of Fame. If that was the case, Ty Cobb would not be in the Hall of Fame. But guess what? He's there because his numbers match up to it. This is just the system. This is what we've been operating on for years. And to me, it's kind of like a kick in the balls to have him be in the Hall of Fame. Look, I get like this committee's there for a reason. I get like I think Jack Morris got inducted via this committee. That's fine. Like I get it. But Even like Lee Smith ha- makes sense. You know, he was, during his during his time frame, he was the most dominant closer in baseball. Right, period. and so you can you can have an argument to be made for that, but in no way you look at the numbers, you look at the eye test. It just does not make sense. And this is going to be the beginning of introductions and people getting into the Hall of Fame through this way. It's going to be ugly. I'm telling you, like something is going to happen that it would not surprise me if this committee was just wiped out. You ready for ugly? Yeah. <laughs> um, just to start off the first Blue Jay bomb of this conversation, Joe Carter was on the same ballot and didn't even yep. get a vote. Yep. There was not one Blue Jay fan on that committee. <laughs> no offense, I don't think Joe Carter is a Hall of Fame worthy player. I believe Joe Carter's story is in- immersed already in the Hall of Fame. One, only one of, this two people, one of two people. Uh, I love Joe Carter just as much as the other guy. I've met him on a couple of occasions. I love Joe Carter, but as far as it's a, it's a tight, you know, he did really well for a long time, but it's the same situation of what we're talking about here. But now that the standards changed, you should have given me 12 votes for Joe Carter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And by the way, that's a similar argument. That, that round table of LaRusa and company could probably say the same thing about Joe. They could say he was a perennial 100 RBI guy. He mm-hmm. hit 30-plus home runs. He won the game-winning. He had the game-winning hit, uh, the, the, you know, the World Series-winning hit. Let's look at all that and put him in. Yet, if we look at his numbers, we can also see that he was a horribly flawed player and that by sabermetric standards, Joe Carter would have a hard time. He'd get Chris Carter treatment. He wouldn't be able to catch on with teams, and he'd be picking up the scraps off the table. So I think, like you said, Adam, I think there's like something political here. I think this is a big FU from the existing committee to say we don't care about sabermetrics and young millennials' perspectives. We're old. We're curmudgeonly. We think our game is being taken over by by a horrible combination of uh, you know serving youth and uh, and casting aside older talent. Here's Harold Baines. Thanks a lot. But that's that's a that's a black eye on the hall. That's not sending a message at all. That's not sending a message to the youth or how things are analyzed or critiqued anymore. That's just that you're you're punching yourself in the face by doing that. That doesn't make any sense to me. That completely destroys the prestige of the Hall of Fame. And yeah. you're you're doing it why to spite young people? Like that just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. If if, if anything, this were. And I say we are as like you know a collective 
we our demographic we're advancing the game in a way we're we're able to expand the analytics of the game which should be a good thing based on numbers and facts not anything arbitrary not anything like we're Amen. making up out of thin air these are facts and numbers that make sense that anyone can utilize so why people would stray away from that is it just doesn't make sense to me all right Ian, i know you're sitting on pins and needles do it man <laughs> well i guess the only thing is that so they need tw- they need twelve votes to get in. Is that what it was? Yeah, seventy five percent. Yeah, twelve yeah, out of sixteen, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So these are twelve opinions of former baseball players, coaches, managers. Were the coaches and managers, or yeah. was it just players? Larusso was one of them. Okay, so managers are in there as well. Um, yeah, it's it it is just it boils down to people that he used to play with and. That's their opinion, and to me, it's it kind of it comes with an asterisk. Like, yes, Baines is a Hall of Famer, but he got voted in by the Today's Game Committee. He wasn't, he didn't go in the front door. And I think that's if you know, kids look up Wikipedia in twenty years if it still exists, and they see Baines is a Hall of Famer, and or you go into Baseball Reference, I think people will kind of understand. Okay, well. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer, but really, like you look at his, you drill down to his numbers and and like his career war and fan graphs and things like that. And it's just not, it doesn't match up with the level of the caliber of players that are in Cooperstown. Um, but yeah, it's just it, again, I feel like if it if this committee leaves behind guys like Dave Steve, leaves guys behind like Fred McGriff. Um, this we will definitely will see that yes people do have agendas and they're just kind of all patting each other on the back and saying that's okay it. I'll get I'll get is. you in don't worry guys well worst yeah. case scenario that's we're gonna have plenty to talk about on this show <laughs> so I mean well, look and, if, and, if if the Hall of Fame is all about asterisks this deserves an asterisk I'm sorry it just it does and that's another well, fun wonderful seem- thing as far as when we're gonna get into some of these guys here in a few minutes if we're gonna do asterisks on how they got in the Hall of Fame why not include asterisks on guys that did steroids right. Yeah. If we're just going to asterisk and put dots and shit all over everybody's uh, plaques, might as well just let over the, the whole floodgates and let everybody have the dot next to their name or something. But, but or have the corner decisions. of, like, don't look over here in the, you know, when you're actually in the hollowed halls. <laughs> but, Craig, decisions like this are damaging to, to, you know, what you're describing is going to happen inevitably and probably sooner rather than later. It already has. Because, you know, because because if you're going to start making exceptions and broadening the standards of what it takes to make your guild, your sanctum, your your excellence, your your level of excellence for eternity, why would you allow these types of decisions to exist? They're they're damaging. They're damaging. They normalize the conversation. I hated the fact that Lee Smith was featured. It was basically featured now in every media release in the same breath as Harold Baines. That's not fair to Lee Smith. He was on a different level. He was the. I remember watching him thinking, "I sure hope he gets in the Hall of Fame one day." And then realizing there are a lot of other closers and a lot of arguments related to closers that will prevent that. And he toiled and he toiled and he got forgotten. And it's a shame that he's reminded, you know, he's remembered rather, and the same breath as people are going to remember Harold Baines dominating the conversation. Uh, And as for Dave Steve, by the way, Ian, I, I will never argue with you on that. To me, Dave Steve was the second best dominant pitcher of his era behind Jack Morris. And on certain good days, he was better than Morris. So, I would love to see Dave Steve get his comeuppance with the way he should, his his true um, rightful place. And Fred McGriff also, except, you know, unfortunately didn't have the flashy numbers and he didn't, you know, which is ironic, isn't he? Because he was so consistent, not Harold Baines consistent, but 
Hall of Fame consistent. He was money in the bank when you needed him, and he got ignored more or less during the whole selection process. Well, I think in the case of those two guys, that unfortunately for them, they both played north of the border. And whether we want to admit it or not, I think there's kind of a bit of a, a bias against players who have played against the Blue Jays, mostly because a lot of people south of the border didn't hear, didn't know of Fred McGriff or didn't know of Dave Steve because he didn't win a World Series. And, and same with McGriff. Like McGriff was a perennial all-star. He won a few home run titles. Um, I think he won a World Series with the with the Braves there, but for the most part, he was kind of a forgotten man in, in the slugging era. So I can see why he got left behind, but ultimately, now that we have these committees, I think this is how you recognize players who you look back at the back of their baseball card or you look at their baseball reference page and you realize, damn, like these guys were good. They were like the best oh. of their era, and they deserve to get in for sure. And if you go by that, the one player that we know will inevitably end up in the Hall of Fame, whether he does it during his his attempts now in his, his 40s as opposed to when they do it the first year after, eligibility and that committee sits down again. All they have to do is look at what he did with the Blue Jays in 96 and 97. Roger Clemens and his back-to-back triple crown years is exactly what's going to get him in the Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Because no matter whether or not it's got an asterisk and you believe he was a doper and he doped into infinity, how do you lead a league in all three of those categories in back-to-back years. I mean, I'm sorry, but that was the most historic moment that a pitcher can have. And no offense. You know, historic acclaim. <laughs> but think about it. Back-to-back triple crowns. Who does that? Roger yeah. Clements. Yeah. And that's why he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. 139.6 career war for Roger Clemens as oh, the highest guy on my list here of guys I wanted to talk about. I, uh, so just to gauge everybody for all the fans that are listening, I did the initial digging for this episode on Baseball Reference by looking at the Toronto Blue Jays homepage. Grab the, the top 24 guys as career war goes for Toronto Blue Jays players. And then I boiled that down into their career war period because all of them did not play for the Toronto Blue Jays. So... Um, top guy, clearly, Roger Clemens, 139.6 career war, 354 career wins, and an insane amount of strikeouts, 4,672. Just insane production. And you can say all you want about the steroids or the content of his character, but there, this guy is the story of baseball and is the elite of elite player that you should be writing it on a ballot. So whether it's with the asterisks, like I mentioned a minute ago, or what, how do you not put them in? Um, Ian, I'll let you kick it off, because Ariar got his two cents. <laughs> yeah, I, and I think, actually, if I remember correctly, I, I still think that Roger Clemens has the highest starting pitcher war total of Blue Jays starting pitchers, and he was only around for two years. <laughs> like, that's how dominant he was at his peak. No big deal. So, like, I think eventually he probably gets in as well, but, I like, we have to have the conversation of, like, what do we do with the guys who are linked with steroids? And, I mean, yes, you know, voters are going to obviously uh, hold a grudge against that, but really you kind of have to vote and, and think back on it and, like, the game itself was tainted like everybody almost everybody was doing it so it it was a level playing field and yes some guys got more edges than others but um it it, ultimately the 
Cooperstown is a museum, and it reflects a, a time in baseball, and it takes the best players from that era. And Roger Clemens was absolutely one of the most dominant starting pitchers of the 90s and, and the early 2000s. And I think you can't have Cooperstown, you can't tell the story of baseball of that era without him, and and especially someone like Barry Bonds, too. So, yeah, I think he, uh, I think he should get in. Um, but yeah, there's probably going to be an asterisk or something, or he's going to be in a back corner or so, or something like that in Cooperstown, but he should be there. All right, so I found it. So Roger Clemens, as a Toronto Blue Jay, had a 20.3 war in two seasons. Just to put that in perspective, his teammate, Pat Hankin, has a 32.7 career war. Wow. I also want to Cy Young. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what's crazy is... This is so bittersweet that we're almost normalizing the conversation when it comes to our attitude, to, you know, our attitudes towards considering players who were suspected of doping. Because I think a few years ago we would never do that. I think I can speak for all four of us. We'd just be kind of hardline and say, if you cheated, you don't deserve to be prioritized or ever to go into the hall. But now we're kind of looking at things. And again, it's somewhat related to the Baines decision. And we're saying, well, it's all perception and it's all part of the era. And we should really consider what times were like back then. And I feel like it's gonna it's gonna create a real difficulty for people to reconcile, um, you know, those who are baby boomers and Gen Xers versus those who are millennials, right? Because if you're a millennial and you're learning about Roger Clemens for the first time, you're not really getting the full story, and you'll be a lot more sympathetic to the fact that he's got a hundred thirty plus WAR, which is like breaking the science scale. I mean, seriously, if I'm, if I'm getting into baseball for the first time and I'm looking up Roger Clemens' stats, I'm asking myself, what on earth? I mean, even with steroid suspicions, this guy clearly was destined for the hall. And, and that's, that's really bittersweet because uh, I wouldn't want cheaters to be rewarded. Maybe the skill we should use is let the nicer ones in first. You know, like let the Andy Pettits and Mike Mussinas in first. That way, if you suspect that they did drugs, you can reconcile the fact that they learned the value of humility by apologizing to people, as opposed to guys like Alex Rodriguez and Barry Bonds, who were just stone-cold liars and felt they could manipulate the media and their fans and basically do what they want because it was so important for them to get those records. That's what made them men, you know? I have one point I have to point out here as far as Roger Clemens is concerned with the Blue Jay thing, and I think this is a big note that should reside with a lot of Toronto Blue Jays fans. 1994 kills baseball in Canada and, almost, and takes one team with it. Yep. Roger Clemens comes into Toronto in 1997 and might have single-handedly saved the Toronto Blue Jays. Anybody yeah. agree with me? Terrible well, idea. Am I going to light think... my desk on fire? <laughs> so what was it, the 80s? Uh, the '98 team won 86 games, or something in that in that range. Was it was Tim they, Johnson's '88. Yeah, year. they had. If you look back at the numbers of that team, I mean, that should have been a playoff team for the Blue Jays. And I think in if they were a second wild card era, they would they would have won the second wild card. The problem was the Yankees and the Red Sox were just so dominant in that era. And Clemens anchored that rotation. There was. Uh, Henkin, I think Halliday was a rookie at the time, or he was a sophomore then. You had Delgado and Green, and uh, man, like I, I just look back and I'm like, how did that team not make the playoffs? Especially, and it was anchored by that performance 
offense by Roger Clemens. And the fun part about that team is it even had a resurgent Tony Fernandez on the clock. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's that's because that's because his 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 blood is from the highest mountains of Valhalla, and <laughs> as a ball player, he's not actually human. Because he was, you know, the thing about Tony that I love telling people is the fact that he got better with age. And you can't say that about baseball players today. I mean, Ortiz, that's what I liked about Ortiz's season a couple of years ago. He was like, forget the fact that I'm 38, 39. Big Pappy's here. And he goes out and has like a, almost a career year. Yeah, that year he had a 321 batting average with 72 RBIs. So he didn't do a lot to help that team. <laughs> but, but you know what, Roger Clemens, I, I don't agree with the point that he made baseball resurgent because I recall that the whole reason for getting him was Gordash's desperate effort to create a draw, and the numbers weren't that that significant. I mean, at first you'd get, you know, 34, 35, 38 guaranteed whenever he'd pitch, and then by, you know, halfway through the season the Blue Jays were out of it, and you were just basically watching Roger Clemens start. So to me, the only thing Roger Clemens brought to the Blue Jays was a real great hotspot for athletes who were suspected of doing drugs and found a way to apply their craft, like Jose Canseco. Remember Jose Canseco's <laughs> oh, home run God, in the upper deck? Too, wasn't he? You know, yes, he was. <laughs> Listen, the Blue Jays were notorious for their underground railroad of drug you know, streaming that was going on in there. A lot of players had resurgent careers at the expense of the city. Yeah. Hey, I, um, ha- I had to give you the outsider's view. We got a south of the six versus the actual Canadians here today. So. <laughs> hey. Hey, it's all good. So, anyways, I want to dive into this list because obvious the obvious things: Roberto Alomar, we all know, in the Hall of Fame, uncontested by Blue Jays fans, that he is the face of the Toronto Blue Jays and the only guy right now currently wearing a Toronto Blue Jays hat on his actual plaque. Soon to be joined by looks like Roy Holiday, and at the moment, through thirty-five uh, wonderful ballots so far submitted to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He currently has 91% of the of the votes, so he's an, if it ended today, shoe in. So we all know Roy Holiday, great. <laughs> so. Yeah, as it should. You know what? A lot of a lot of fans that I speak with that talk about the Hall of Fame like mentioning the fact that if they can remember one stretch that a player was dominant, and it doesn't have to be a long stretch, right? You look at Eric Lindros in the NHL; he had about a eight nine year stretch where he was the best at what he did. Hey, How do you hey. argue with Roy? You know, there was a stretch there between, what, 2003 and 2011 where you could call him not just the best pitcher in the AL, but some would argue in baseball. And to me, that's Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think uh, there's no question. Like, he's was one of the best of his era. And again, it just it, it, it harkens back to that, that bias against players who unfortunately play north of the 49th parallel. And he got he often got forgotten because... He played on a, on one the Blue Jays and two a non-contending team. Um, I mean, the second he went to Philadelphia, it was like, well, where has this guy been all these years? Yeah. Well, he was playing up and he was playing with the Blue Jays. Like he was doing this exact same thing for like a seven, eight-year stretch. And he has the hardware. He, he has the Cy Youngs. He threw a no-hitter and a perfect game. And. Yeah, he didn't win a World Series ring. He didn't play in one of the big... Well, Philadelphia was a fairly big market. He didn't play in Boston or uh, L.A. or New York. But absolutely, he was one of the best of his era. And again, you can't tell the story of you know that era of baseball without Roy Halladay. So I think unquestionably, whether it's this year, whether it's next year or the following, I think he gets in for sure. He was, he the, he was the epitome of class, too. So accessible so approachable and relatable by fans a lot of humility 
you know, we don't see that with a lot of baseball players anymore. Even if you look at the Blue Jays lineup and look at some of the interviews and some of the performances this year especially, it seems like a lot of the players are very disconnected with what it means to perform in front of fans. With Halliday, you got it all. You got your money's worth and then some. And you just don't get that these days at a Blue Jays game. But you knew that if Roy Halliday was pitching, you'd be glued to your seat, transfixed by every pitch. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who got into baseball here in Toronto because of Roy Halliday. And that's the real legacy and why it's, you know, a no-brainer for me. He's he's Cooper's downworthy. And it's it, it's it comes to mind that how much of watch must watch television it was to see him pitch, especially in a Blue Jays uniform, because during that time with the angry Jays black uniforms, what have you, there was really nothing exciting to watch when it came to the team other than like your loyalty to the team. And to have a guy like Roy Halladay, like that was my sort of like fallback chip right there. It's just like, oh all my friends here in New England, they'd be like, Oh, the Blue Jays suck so bad. Yeah, but we got Roy Halladay. So like there's that. And it's it those intangibles aside, like yes, he does have the numbers. Yes, he does have the hardware. And it's just unfortunate that like I hope, and this is like I'm I'm treading on thin ice here, but I, I hope that the untimely death isn't the factor. I'm sure it has something to do with it, but like he deserves to be in there yeah. regardless. Like the numbers definitely prove that he is worthy of this. And, yes, I, I know the untimely death is, like, going to be a, a factor, but it, it's – be it, if you just I, – I hate saying this, but if you just put that aside, looking at his career, he's a shoo in Like, he is one of the most dominant pitchers that this organization has ever seen, and he deserves to be celebrated. Yeah, yeah so I think, Adam, you might have even been the one that asked me this question, or maybe it was while I was with you and I and on the uh, Jays Journal podcast, Ari, but – Somebody asked me right the day he retired as a Blue Jay, just to you know bring that up with everybody. Just make sure it's remembered. Yeah. Um, one of you, somebody asked me and goes, "Do you think Roy Holiday is a Hall of Famer?" And I said, "Not even a question. The question, the only question you should be asking yourself is, does he wear an Angry Bird on his plaque?" <laughs> So you might, you might have to. Oh, it's gonna burn. It's gonna hurt, man. I'm gonna flat, yeah. I'm hoping for Flashback Friday type. Hat at least on the plaque. I think that yeah, I I am leaning towards that because I remember distinctly. I don't know what his record was, but on Friday, flashback Fridays. That's how I remember Roy Halladay in that powder blues, the powder blue, (laughs) and he would always dominate at home on Friday night. I don't know what it was, but he took his game to a complete different level. So that's just my guess. I'm guessing it's the old school Jay, but yeah, maybe that angry Jay. Surrealism at its finest. I remember baseball around that time, 03, 04, 05. The branding was horrible. The uniforms were ridiculous. The hijinks on the field because they were J.P. Ricciardi teams, which means every year you got a completely different team. You know, yeah, one year yeah. you got a you got a team that picked up three or four free agents. Another team, another year you had one where you made a trade. And you know, it's funny we talked about Tulo. I remember Scott Rowland coming to this market yeah. and, and like Tulo. You remember that? And 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 thinking. I can't believe I'm here. This really sucks, but I'm going to make the best of it. And that's the biggest difference between Tulo and, and Scotty Rowland is that Rowland made the best of it and actually overformed to get himself traded, whereas Tulo is, you know, basically collected a paycheck and, and underperformed. But, you know, to, to the point of, of surrealism, Roy Halladay made it palatable. Roy Halladay right was the only reason. You know, people argue who Batista for a while. That was the only reason I watched now. the Blue Jays. Well, that's fine, but Roy Halladay was money in the bank. 
There was no question if you came to see a Roy Halladay start, you were A, going to be entertained, and B, most likely leave with a smile on your face because your home team won. And that, that, to me, is Hall of Fame. So now that we put the should-be Hall of Famer into perspective, let's take a look at what we were talking about here as far as all the fun as that, I'm going to call it the Harold Baines line of the uh, wonderful war here, and other than a Roy Holland is completely monstrously blowing that war number out of the water with his career numbers, and we, we already mentioned Roger Clins, I have a plethora of Blue Jays here that are also above the line, and we're just going to do a Hall of Famer or not, and I'm going to even mix them up, and I'm just going to throw it out there for a wonderful you know, discussion here. Coming in at a career war of 58.2, we have John Olerud. Hall of Famer or not, Adam, go. I think so. I, 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 I See, now it's all weird because I have the Harold Baines in my mind. But yeah, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say Olerud deserves to be in the Hall. So, as far as all of things are concerned with John Olerud and everything, this guy was a perennial hitter for his time frame, period. And on his only Hall of Fame ballot in 2011, he did not even garner a full percent of votes. Point yeah. seven. That's You just see, Adam, the, the Harold Baines effect is already... It's, it's, like a it's in there. We've all been yeah. infected because John Olerud, in my opinion, is not a Hall of Famer and will never be considered a Hall of Famer. But the very fact that you mulled it over. And I won't lie to you, while you were talking, I was thinking in my head and I thought to myself, you know, compared to Harold Baines, John exactly. Olerud is a Hall of Famer. Exactly. So comparably, maybe the question should be, uh, Craig, are we comparing to Harold Baines or are we like being true to form Hall of Fame? Because to me, John Olerud is not a Hall of Famer. True to like, form, if you were going to sign your ballot today as a baseball writer, Ari, would you vote for John Olerud? Because I'm hearing it. I, I would not. I would I would be thankful for some of the fond memories and the fact that at one point in time he was one of the best, if not the best, hitter when he hit, you know, what was it, 367. But in my books, John Olerud was just a very good player, certainly not a Hall of Famer. All right, Ian. All right, so we're going, hold on, we're going just by BWAA, right? Yeah. We're not going. If you're okay. going to put him in, and um, then I, we'll discuss the Harold uh, Baines uh, effect. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, no, I, I, again, I think he's a, a great player. Had some really great years with the Blue Jays, but I don't, I don't think he's Cooperstown worthy. All right, moving down to the next gentleman on the line here, and unfortunately, my computer's being wonderfully slow all of a sudden. But it's Dave Steve. Do you think he is a Hall of Famer on your uh, writing ballot? And uh, we'll just start off with Ari. I think you already mentioned this one. Well, I. I obviously will sound biased if I say that if you hadn't have told me the Jack Morris details and if I didn't know about what ultimately would play out with Jack Morris and the committee, I would say no. But, you know, looking back, especially over the last few years and reviewing what he did, Dave Steeb to me was someone that was criminally overlooked because of a lot of the of the flashy stats. He was certainly a someone who, you know, could give you the quality starts you need, the the aggregate innings pitched. For a short while there, he was, uh, I think, close to 200. I think he may have had one year where he had 200 strikeouts. I mean, the thing about Dave Steve is his consistency and his competitiveness. And just based on my memories of him and seeing the shape of the hall that it's in now, I would actually vote for Dave Steve for the Hall of Fame. I would, I would look to other players first, but I think at some point, uh, from a Veterans Committee perspective, I would say, you know what? He was the second best right-hander between like 1982 and 1989 in an entire decade of baseball. 
All right. Yeah, I, I would put him in there. I mean, he's a seven-time All-Star. Uh, he won an ERA title, one of the best starters of of the 80s, uh, hands down. Um, you know, he had some injury trouble there at the, at the very end, but I think ultimately he's just someone who kind of encapsulated that era of Blue Jays baseball. And, I mean, he was one of the best. Like, he... I don't think he won a, a World Series title. No, he did win one no, in '92. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, he got technically. It yeah, way, yeah. But, but like I, when I think back of the that era of Blue Jays baseball, I see Dave Steep leading that uh, starting rotation, and uh, the dude had a hundred and hundred and three complete games in his career. Like, jeez, oh, that's just like a kind of, a kind of uh, stat you just don't see anymore. He would just pick up like twenty complete games in a year. So. My ultimate, I tip the hat to him. in a row right? would be almost no hitters. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, so don't, like, don't underestimate the what was it five near misses? I guess technically he could have had five no hitters at a minimum if they all went his way. But he had back to back perfect games that he lost with two outs in the ninth. I mean, come on. Yeah. So to the fa- and the fact that he had a no hitter too, right? So that's that to me. <laughs> that's just kind of the the icing on the cake. I think he should be in there eventually by the veterans committee, hopefully. All right. Yeah, I have no disagreement in that. I, I think that, you know, when you when you examine the numbers, when you look at especially uh, how we perform for this team, like it's again, like it, to me, it's it's one of those players that I'm surprised isn't. But you know, that's the breaks, I guess. Whatever. So, next person on my list, Fred McGriff, is currently on his last ballot before it would all of a sudden go up to this you know, new era committee, the veterans committee, whatever the heck committee he ends up landing on first. So at the moment, Fred McGriff has not eclipsed, uh, I think it was 20% or so on each ballot. Uh, his highest rating so far has been 23.9%. This is a guy that was a perennial like all-star and was continually in the MVP conversation and even finished in the top 20 repetitively and for a good stretch. How is he not getting more votes? And this is, I, I think he's falling into that same kind of ballpark as the Larry Walkers and whatnot of the world, but 52.6 career war. Adam, what do you think? I don't think... Uh, I'm going to have to say no. Does it sound bad that I'm saying no? I'm going to have to say <laughs> no on that. Um, as good of a hitter that he was and as good of an athlete that he was, yeah, you're right, he did have some Hall of Fame nods, I mean, some MVP nods. Um, definitely, you know, all-star worthy, but I, I just... I'm going to have to say no. In terms of the hall, in terms of what you have to do to get in there, I'm, I'm going to say no. All right, Ian, you want to go next? All right, so here's my, this is the tweet that I sent out a few weeks ago. So there's 26 players in MLB history who hit 493 home runs or more. 19 of them are in the Hall of Fame. Seven of them were linked to PEDs, so they're, you know, they could be iffy. Uh, Albert Pujols is one of them. Uh, still active. David Ortiz, not yet eligible for the Hall of Fame. And then there's Fred McGriff. So he is one of those 26 players. Um, I think if he hits seven more home runs, he's an, autom- he's an automatic into the Hall of Fame. I think that 500 home run threshold is something big in the, in the mind of voters. And he has the exact same amount of career home runs as Lou Gehrig. So, um, I mean, when I think back, I mean... McGriff kind of got lost among all those sluggers of the late 80s and early 90s, but he was still there. Like he had, he would always hit 30 plus home runs, 
And I, I think the fact that he almost amassed 500 home runs just speaks to the kind of the caliber of player that he is. And I think he uh, ultimately deserves to get in. Are your two cents? You know, in that big trade that changed everything, you know, our, our biblical Blue Jays Old Testament moment where McGriff was, was sent packing to Atlanta, I remember having seen enough of him when I was, whatever, 15, 16 years old that that swing, that gorgeous left-handed swing and his approach at the plate, it, it just seemed like the Blue Jays could regret that. And, of course, history played out so that they did because the World Series championships happened. But when you look at his career and what he did in Atlanta, it, to me, it's a really simple argument. If I were to say to you, gentlemen, that you could play Major League Baseball for 19 years and average 32 home runs and 102 RBIs a year, is that not a Hall of Fame career? I mean, by, by any standards of whatever, whatever era you're in, it represents a level of consistency that puts Harold Baines to shame. Yeah. Because if I were to line up their careers next to each other, and, and buoyed by the stats that that Ian provided, which is, comparably speaking, I mean, comparatively, you look around and you see that these numbers are worthwhile. It's just a shame that he was seven short at a time when the narrative was still, you needed to reach the magical 500 home run, you know, plateau. And the fact that he just missed it, and the fact that he started just a little bit before the really big names that then got clouded in the steroid era, I think Freddie McGriff, the crime dog, just got lost. He got lost in the shuffle. He was one of those players that, for whatever reason, was out of time and out of sight and out of mind, but now it's time to bring him back in mind and realize that he was one of the most, if not the most, consistent hitter during the 1990s as the Atlanta Braves went, what was it, gentlemen, 13, 14 years in a row with postseason play? I mean, come on. He was yep. there, and he helped contribute to make it happen. And he's, he was really he's, the he's big key of turning that switch over them from being choke artists. It was kind of similar well, that's to us it, all right? of a sudden grabbing Carter and Alomar. We, you know, 92, we're good. You know, same kind of thing. So that but, you know, he finished the in the top that. 10. He was in the top 10 in MVP, like, I think, six or seven times. So it's not like he was some guy out there. He, he In some ways, he reminds me of, what, Freddie Freeman and, and Goldschmidt today? You know, those guys that you hear about in the NL that are really good, but you just don't hear about enough. That was the grime dog. Plus, how much did he get lost in the shuffle of the gr- more or less, like, what, 15 years of incredible playing first basemen as far as hitters goes? The Thomases, Bagwells, all that. You know, all those guys yeah, being exactly. Hall of Famers. And I'm sure they're on that list that you were just uh, alluding to. <laughs> so, moving right along, I'm assuming this part of this conversation is going to get a little bit easier. But everybody that we have been talking about up to this, up to and through the rest of this show, has above Harold Baines level war and should have <laughs> at least gotten this equal consideration. Um, I know Ari is a big fan. Jimmy Key also above that line you know jimmy jimmy i think just falls short in that his career wasn't i'm trying to rack rack my brain did he pitch maybe 17 18 years but i know that towards the tail end of his career his numbers started to slow down jimmy key again is one of those guys that i would put in john olerud's category a really brilliant pitcher who had some phenomenal overachieving years but i think comparatively speaking you'll find that there are arms out there that match up against him that would go way ahead of him so i don't know it would be borderline he's one of those players i'd have to think about maybe five to ten years from now when 
you know, the cultural perspe- perspectives have changed and we're letting everyone and anyone into the hall. So, maybe <laughs> that's, you know, that's that's one to kind of contrast with the future. Because right now it's it doesn't feel Hall of Fame-esque for me for, from what I remember of his career with the Yankees and Blue Jays. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's one of those careers that, you know, as I mentioned in the jump of the show about Baines, it's like you can have pride to have a good career, a good solid career, but that doesn't mean um, it's Hall of Fame worthy. So I'm I'm going to kind of shake my head at this and just say no not in like not that he's i don't want to put any negative spin on him i just don't think it's it's a hall of fame worthy career yeah i and your your two cents yeah no i don't think so either um i mean he had a so 15 year career uh five time one two three four five time all-star he he had one era title in 87 i kind of take him few he's a, a few pegs down for me when I think of like the the Mount Rushmore of uh, of Blue Jays starting pitchers, I don't I don't even know if he cracks that top four. So, uh, in that sense, I, I definitely think he's not uh, not Hall of Fame worthy. All right, and like the final. And, guy and by wanna, the way, oh, God. just for the record, if you if we take a moment and look at that year where he finished the first time he finished the runner up to the Cy Young to Clemens in 1987, you could make a case that he should have won it that year. Because he led the league in ERA and in WHIP, but he didn't have 20 wins. And don't forget, in the late '80s, if you got 20 wins, well, who was it? What was the name of the Oakland pitcher? Who uh, was it? Storm Davis. Somebody won because they had 20 plus wins, and and that was what you needed to win. Wins but these game. days, you could Stormy have Davis. you know 12. There you go. He had 17 wins, not 20, not not good yeah. enough. <laughs> That's it, and exactly. But yet he leads in ERA and WHIP. Go figure. <laughs> And he actually did that twice. Not only did he do it that year, Ari, early in his career, but it is his second year as a New York Yankee. He finished second in the Cy Young Award race in 1994. Well, and, and now if, if he's got both trophies, right, if he wins both those awards, then maybe the conversation changes. Yep. But it goes back to what we talked about from the start of the show, which is why we're having some really great discussion about it, which is how do we determine who the best of the best really are? And these names have to be the best of, of who they played with at the time, especially, and you're just not seeing that with some of these names that are coming up now below 60 war. Yeah. So the next couple of guys I'm going to call the, you know, these <laughs> four guys are, um, I'm going to call the line, basically, because I, in my opinion, I don't think any of them are full Hall of Famers with one exception, and I think you guys will all agree with me on this, but and it's a time frame here. The next few guys on this list are Devon White, Tony Fernandez, Carlos Delgado, and Jesse Barfield, all above that line of, you know, 40 war and having very, very good playing careers. And I don't think outside of Carlos Delgado that many people would have been, oh, yeah, that's def- they're definitely Hall of Famers. But maybe I and you will tell me wrong. Um, yeah, I think I think Delgado was there. He had uh, four seventy three homers, I think. Um, so, and again, he kind of he's his career kind of mirrored McGriff's, where um, he didn't really take off with the national base beat until he went to a, a U.S. team. Um, those other guys, like I mean uh, Jesse Barfield, you know, heck of a player, great arm. Um, who else did you say was in that list? Devon White, Tony Fernandez, Carlos Delgado. Yeah, you know what, maybe... five war of each other. Maybe for... Maybe Tony Fernandez? I mean, I feel like just because he's he had some really stellar years there and just the fact the longevity of his career, um, he would be... Those two would be... I mean, Delgado, I think, should get in. Fernandez might be borderline, but the others, I would probably say no. Yeah. 
I think Delgado fits the fear factor. That this guy was feared every day another team came to the ballpark. Um, Adam, what do you think? I think Delgado is... I'm surprised he's not. Um, I, I just think the, the raw power that he exhibited is just... It was second to none. And, you know, I, I don't think any of the the other names that you floated out... I'm Again, good careers, not Hall of Fame worthy. But um, just, you know, the offense alone from Delgado was just... It, it was amazing to see, it, especially for a Blue Jays fan. It's just... It was amazing to see. And I know, like, you're probably right, Ian, that people, like, in, in my area, in, in the United States, probably weren't aware as much as they should have been to the to what Delgado, you know, how well he performed on the field, but, you know, or especially at the plate, but to to have him not in the hall, to me, is just, it's an oddity. Only getting .7% on his Hall yeah. of Fame, uh, one Hall of Fame ballot. Ari, I'm pretty sure he would have been on your ballot. Well, you know, it, it's funny, in that group, you could have, like, Hall of Fames that are different Hall of Fames, like Jesse Barfield would get into the nicest baseball player of all time, Hall of Fame. Yeah. And uh, Devon White would get into the Reclamation Project of the Year Hall of Fame forever in baseball. I mean, think about it. They basically picked him up from, I think it was the California Angels, and he turned out to be exactly the center fielder that would end up making the kind of catch and epic moment that makes you realize they couldn't have done it without him. Nice players. Uh, Tony, of course, we know is near and dear to my heart as my favorite Toronto Blue Jays player, and if he had been healthy, we would be talking about him in the Hall of Fame because his numbers, when he stayed healthy, were remarkable. His defense, two-way player, again, unfortunately didn't work out for him. Without hesitation, though, I say that Carlos Delgado should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and it is an absolute travesty that a player whom we can go back to averages again. In his 17-year career, Carlos Delgado averaged 3,820 RBI. It's ridiculous. Like Again, I don't care what era of baseball you evaluate that by. That is an incredibly productive, consistent, high-profile career. And yet he got 3.5% on the first ballot and was completely punted off of it. And personally, I think it has to do with his political stance on the U.S. government, because if you recall, he took exception to the way the the Americans handled Puerto Rico. Surprise, surprise. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. And needless to say, I think he didn't stand for an anthem. I think Ian might remember the game itself. I forgot what the date was. There was one game in the early 2000s where um, they were supposed to honor the flag, and he was protesting, and he didn't stand. And I think that's what cost him a Hall of Fame bid. And and, and I'm, you've got to believe that, because there's no other way of explaining how a player of his caliber only musters 3.5% on his first attempt and is then kicked off. And to the best of my knowledge, he was never... Li- I mean, basically, almost every player was linked with steroids during that era. I don't recall yes, there that's ever right. being like any no rumblings of anything. He was clean. Yeah, He was He was Frank Thomas clean. He was a yeah. player in his era that dominated the National League after he was done dominating the American League. 3.5%. Give me a break. What a joke this committee is. What a joke this Hall of Fame process is. It just makes you shake your head in disgust. Yeah, this is almost like level of like Madonna being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like insulting. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think Madonna's great in anything she does personally. So you know, I think Madonna so, should be president. We'll be all better off. That would definitely wouldn't be the worst thing over here, at least. No, so, I, I'm only kidding. I think Madonna being president would somehow be worse than Donald Trump. So don't don't worry. Let's nobody hold would on let her to do Madonna. anything probably. <laughs> <laughs> Go sing a song. <laughs> so, anyways, the last person I want to note here, because technically 
if he, his season was kaput today, he has a better war in, let's say, Harold Baines. Josh Donaldson, a current player, current Blue, well, recent Blue Jay, <laughs> has a higher war than thir- than um, Harold Baines. Do you think, with what is left in the tank for Josh Donaldson as he kicks off his tenure with the Atlanta Braves here this season, do you think he still projects as a Hall of Famer? Right now, he, according to Baseball Reference, he's only going to hit 17 home runs with 50 RBIs this season. And uh, whoever wants to kick it off. <laughs> All right, I'll jump on it. Um, can I, this is kind of like tongue-in-cheek, but can I put an asterisk on that just to see how he does this year? Because, like, if he if he is fully recovered from this injury and he does, like, bounce back in a huge way, then, like, I just think that he still has a little bit more time to be productive and we could see those numbers, like, climb up and to benefit him in that regard. So I, I think now it's sort of on hold. I It's, it's not a, a definite no. It's sort of like, Wait yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think he could get there, but like he has to get there, and I think he believes for his to his credit, I think he believes that he does have a lot left in the tank, and there's no reason to think that he doesn't. So, if if the projections are correct, then yeah, yeah, sure. If if he plays for another like two three years with you know decent to good offensive production, I think he does deserve to be in the hall. Yeah, I think he's. It's- too much of a late bloomer for me. Um, he got r- really a late start and didn't emerge as a as a force in the American League until his late twenties, and now he's entering his age thirty three season, I believe. Yep. Um, I mean, I don't doubt that he'll have a successful season in Atlanta uh, this year, but um, just the fact that he's had two injury shortened seasons the last two years that cost him a ton of money, um, cost him a lot of stats as well. Uh, um, so I, I don't, I don't really see it. Even if he has a stellar next couple of years, I just think the fact that he got started so late in his career um, that really hampered yeah. his chances of having of sniffing Cooperstown at all. Yeah, I feel like I had to at least throw this guy, you know, curveball at everybody. You know, current player, not a very long career, but yet still has the Harold Baines number. Yeah, and is eclipsing well, him in a, you know what projections could be. <laughs> pretty good in some of these places. Ari, you want to la- throw it out, the nail in the coffin here? You know, you're, you're talking about the millennial war darling of his era, right? Yeah. I mean, the whole notion of bantering about sabermetrics really got fashionable when discussing Josh Donaldson, because before he became a Toronto Blue Jays player, he was known as that really great player um, that you don't really know about very much because he's out in Oakland and he's just doing his thing and he's kind of vanilla and he's just a gamer and he's meanwhile the, the the war is piling up and then he comes to the Blue Jays and you get to see what he's all about and you know I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's the comeback player of the year and and does something really nice like 30 home runs and whatever 90 RBI and you know he's like a three and a half war but realistically in order to become considered for the Hall of Fame you have to show consistency more than anything and and otherwise you get the Don Mattingly effect right I mean Don Mattingly to me is a Hall of Famer but he's not talent wise he deserves to be there but because he wasn't able to sustain it long enough in his career he's hurt by that fact but for some reason he feels like a Hall of Famer I don't know how you guys feel about that but when I think of Don Mattingly I think of a guy who for a short time was the best of the best easily the gamer effect with Don Mattingly passes that eye test a million times over. You felt like watching Don Manley every day. You were watching something special. He was, 
I, I don't know if you all had a chance to see him. Maybe, Adam, I don't know if you were old enough, but Don yeah. Mattingly would come to the plate in clutch situations, and you were done. Like, look away. If it's your team he's up against, he's going to do something. He was such an incredible plate protector. He was part of that era of Kirby Puckett and of Wade Boggs and Tony Gwynn when baseball was played by cerebral hitters who didn't whine because a shift was placed on them. Instead, they'd hit opposite field. It's time to grow up, major leaguers. Grow up. Play aggressive. (laughs) There you go, millennials. Take it. (laughs) So, all right, gentlemen, I think I've taken up enough of your time, and clearly we have hit this really, really hard, and we have fledged out a couple guys that should at least be Toronto Blue Jays' uh, ex-players as far as who should be going to the Hall of Fame. Sounds like we got ballots written for Roger Clemens, possibly Dave Steeb and Fred McGriff, almost definites, and Carlos Delgado. So is that an accurate statement, gentlemen? Good. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to go around the table here, and I'll let you plug your guys' fun, know what you've been up to and what's cooking and all that kind of good stuff. Ian, like, it's, like I said, it's your first time on the show, so I'll let you kick things off. Um. Yeah, I mean, things have been kind of quiet up until this point, but the Tulowitzki news kind of got things going again. So I guess I'm just uh, working on something about uh, Charlie Montoyo. He, he said during the winter meetings about how the Jays are – might employ the opener and are really going to utilize the shift a lot more next uh, next season. So I'm just kind of looking at the comparatives of how we employed that in Tampa Bay last year and uh, what uh, Blue Jays fans can look forward to in 2019. That sounds good, Ian. And uh, obviously there's plenty of places everybody can find you. Uh, Blue Jay Hunter <laughs> on Twitter, correct? That's right. Uh, Blue Jay Hunter, you can... Uh, I'm writing for Daily Hive as well, Blue Jays Nation, and uh, Toronto Life sometimes as well. So all over the place. There you go. So all you uh, wonderful Blue Jays fans, make sure you follow uh, Ian Hunter, and you'll be all set on all kinds of accounts, apparently. And speaking of fun, got to hit up Ari Shapiro here next. Uh, what do you got cooking, man? Well, I appreciate the time to uh, to check out your new show because I love it. I mean, I've been on it before, but it seems to have like morphed into this incredibly dynamic thing that... Uh, I appreciate being on. So thanks for having me. That's that's first and foremost. And social media is great because you can set favorites. And I, I always, you know, follow Ian at Blue Jay Hunter to get all my social media Twitter goodness. So I'm, in essence, plugging Ian a second time for him. Thank you very spot. much. But, Checks in the mail. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. I hope it's more than my podcasting royalty check. But hey, anyways, <laughs> you can put in the effects after, Craig. But no, I'm uh, I'm speaking of publishing, I'm doing a lot of it myself. You can check out my website at arishapiro.ca where I have scores of contributors from all walks of life, including some present company here, uh, covering everything from baseball, hockey, and basketball, and technology, and sports, and even existentialism. And uh, stay tuned for more Jays Journal goodness. I'm going to be doing a player year in review of every Blue Jays player this month. I started with Russell Martin. Hopefully this weekend I'll bring out Justin Smoke, and we'll go from there. Ari, I'm glad you're all, you know, joining us out here and there because, you know, it, we aim for the sitting and watching a ball game while we're throwing beer and peanuts at the TV when we're angry. So that's the level of the bar. Right here. <laughs> so cathartic. we got to do that more often, that's for sure. Yeah, well, and um, as uh, my co-host for when we do live Blue Jays casts here, Adam Corsair, my buddy of southofthesix.com, what do you got cooking, my friend? First of all, don't throw beer at a TV. It's a waste of beer. It's a terrible waste of beer. Uh uh, you can find me at southofthesix.com, as you mentioned. Uh, we got a score of writers on there talking about Raptors, talking about Blue Jays. Um, right now, uh, Craig, i got to say you're carrying the Blue Jays talk you know, in the <laughs> offseason, so I appreciate that. 
Um, what we got going on, I still do the weekly podcast. Uh, Raptors season is cooking right now, so that's pretty much the focus of the show right now. However, we will be having a Blue Jays roundtable coming up. Um, I usually like to do that dead in the middle of December so we can throw out a little holiday bonus for people. So you can look forward to that. Um, otherwise, SouthOfTheSix.com, at South of the Six. Hit me up. Uh, Craig, I appreciate you having me on, man. It's been a blast. No worries, my friend. It's always a good time. And gentlemen, um, I'm going to do a quick little closeout here, but it has been a pleasure uh, having you all on the show this evening, and I really think we had some good talks, and it has been a pleasure. Same. Pleasure Thank you very much. Stuff, no worries. Uh, so everybody, make sure you jump on everybody's uh, fun, wonderful followings on Twitters and check out their new articles and everything at all their wonderful locations. Here at Jaybird Watching, uh, we got plenty of things going on. We've been trying to get you a new episode every week. Uh, we got the Wednesday Wallop coming up next week with me and Brandon Panikar. And don't forget to follow us on our new website, jaybirdwatching.com, along with on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, here, there, everywhere that you can possibly get your podcasting pleasures from. So hit up Jaybird Watching, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and join the conversation at BirdWatchingGC. Peace out, Blue Jays fans, and let's go, Blue Jays. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.